You're listening to a Radio Stockdale podcast. Podcasts that are inspiring, interactive, and feature various discussions of leadership, ethics, and law. Welcome to Philosophy at the Movies, a podcast where we discuss themes in the history of philosophy through the medium of films. I'm Alex Baker, and joining me as always... Sean Baker. And today's topic is the 2005 film, The War of the Worlds, and we are coming to you live from a radio studio in Grover's Mill, New Jersey. (laughs) I had to make that joke. Oh, yeah, 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 absolutely. So this is the part of the show where we do the overall plot summary of the movie. But I feel everybody kind of knows the overall plot of a War of the Worlds yeah. story, don't they? Yeah. At this point, pretty much the Martians invade. I mean, the in the H.G. Wells novel, it was an unnamed protagonist, right? And he just sort of wanders around, meets various people. In this one, it's Ray Ferrier, or how, right, Ferrier, yeah. Ferrier, yeah. And he's this blue collar guy, works on the docks, and he's recently divorced. And he's got two kids, and it follows his weekend with his daughter and his teenage son. Yeah. And from hell. Yeah. It just happens to be the weekend that the aliens invade. (laughs) There's a lightning storm. It's very freakish. It's a EMP storm as well. All the power, all power's gone. Right. And then these things come from under the ground, these tripods, and they shoot these heat rays. Right causes horrible devastation it happens all across the world they figure out that this is an invasion of aliens yeah and all is nearly he's res- trying to help his kids he breaks off from the one son who wants to help with the army and fight right. we'll get into that later because yeah. there's some parts of that i don't like at all yeah but they get stuck with um character played he's by a little Tim. yeah he's a little bit of an amalgamation or a, a very watered down version of the parson in the H.G. Wells novel. I mean, it, they really kind of, I think, dropped the ball on this, this character. In fact, I, I think just in general, yeah, my, my my response to the film is they dropped the ball on the War of the Worlds story. I think there was a lot they missed yeah. with this film, I actually yeah. think. And, you know, the big twist at the end, it looks all it looks like is lost. looks like the Martians have completely controlled the world, but they start dying off mysteriously. And we find out at the end that, of course, it wasn't any of our weapons or anything we did. It was the bacteria and the yeah. common cold and all the things we've grown, you know, immune to because we've lived on this earth. They yep. did not prepare for that, and that's what killed them. Yep. Everybody knows the War of the World stories. <laughs> they know that twist. This is one of the most famous novels ever written. Yes. And so the thing I do want to ask is we saw this in theaters when it came out. I mean, this was, yeah. I mean, this is Steven Spielberg. He's, at that point, he still had that draw. Yeah. And it was the eighth highest grossing film of that year. So this was a big box office hit. And yeah. overall, if you look at like Rotten Tomatoes, it's overall pretty positive. But I, I looking back, because I liked it a lot as a kid. I saw it quite a few times, but I, I think it's still okay, but yeah. I don't like it nearly as it's this is not going to be mentioned in the top of spielberg's works. no it's somewhere in the middle of the pack for yes. sure and again i think it's because it's essentially a very watered down version of the story 
Uh, you know, I'm familiar with uh, various versions of the story, obviously the novel, but there have been adaptations uh, both in film and radio. And there are just, there are so many themes that are taken up in the novel that uh, for some reason he just, he doesn't, he doesn't want to address and, uh, or addresses very uh, briefly that I, I think, that, and given that it's Spielberg, it's not like he would shy away from some of the issues that are raised in the novel, but he just chose not to do it. And it's almost like he just wanted to make something like a primarily action-adventure film. And it really, it's a lost opportunity, I'd have to say. Well, I think he was going for, and this, I, I, I don't know exactly who the screenwriting credits were, but... I don't know if he was also, but other people worked on the screenplay, and then they came to him, and he decided to hop on as director. So this oh. idea doesn't entirely fall on his shoulders gotcha. as far as the blame. But I think what they were going for was the original War of the Worlds was a reflection, I think, H.G. Wells' concerns about colonialism, particularly with the British Empire. Yeah, This idea that, you know, this empire was the world's superpower at the time. They're confident in their empire. Yeah. And But then it's sort of turning this around that they're the ones being invaded. They're the ones having their land took over because um, there was a, one video I do want to point out. Um, this uh, critic called, named, her name is Lindsay Ellis. She did a comparison between the War of the Worlds and uh, Independence Day. But she brought upon that the first chapter of War of the Worlds, he talks about, you know, before we blame the Martians, we have to realize we did things like that. He brings up the oh, Tasmanians, yeah. Yeah. particularly with the yeah. British Empire. And he doesn't, I, if he was, if the writers for this film were trying to address that, for me, it was entirely lost. I, th- I didn't see that. What at all. they were, I think, were going for was taking the themes into a post nine eleven. And again, I. I I guess I just don't see it. They, oh, they don't? failed if they if they were trying I, to do that. I think yeah. there's a lot of imagery. The one, the big thing I saw was the first attack when they're running through. There's a few things. One of the things is he's got the ash of the people on him. Yeah, and you think of the That's infamous true. footage of people walking yeah. around the World Trade Center after the collapse, and they're covered in ash. Yeah. And we, we recently talked about worth and what that you know the health. Yeah. damage that did to people for so many years yes and even just a little the little part that i think is somewhat you see the one guy with the camcorder and mm-hmm. he gets shot by the heat ray and then we see that little shot of the thing going wrong you can see how many uh personal home camcorders were used when we yeah. saw the planes hit the towers i mean the Famously, um, I the Saudet, I'm not sure if I pronounced their name, but there, there were two brothers who were actually that day were documenting a firefighter. Yeah, right. and there we it's the only footage we really see of the first plane yes. hitting. Yes, and he they're just doing some sort of gas main leak or something. So, yeah, and I, he pulls the camera up and we see the plane. There's hitting. definitely visually uh, uh, inspiration there. You're right, uh, and I did catch that with. Especially when the woman is vaporized in front of him and he's got that ash on him. He goes home and he's mm-hmm. kind of in shock. And they're saying, what's that all over you? What's that all over you? And he, he, he can't speak for a little yeah. while. And even the daughter, Rachel, when they're driving in the car, she says, is this the terrorists? Yeah, yeah, right, yeah. So, yeah, um, I, can, I can see visually there was inspiration. It was only four years after the fact or so, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but in terms of exploring it thematically, I guess I, if they were trying to do that in some way, and 
draw some perfect, kind of a comparison yeah. I, tw- between this imaginary war and the war on terror, I, I couldn't see it, honestly. I think it's not necessarily that the terrorists, I mean, the aliens are terrorists. Yeah. But it, it's that this confusion of, you know, we don't know what's going on. We don't know why they hit. And even in other imageries, when they're heading to the ferry yeah. and there's that wall of people's of missing posters that was seen a lot during yes, New York after true. 9-11 that is true. I think he was trying to convey that confusion we had and that fear of where do we go yeah. and even his son Robbie his son is always you know very naive but he wants to get back he wants retaliation he wants to hop yeah. on and join the army yeah. and I'm pretty sure right after 9-11 there was a lot of you know young adults who signed up for the military to you know just to head to Afghanistan and get back at them right. for retaliation yeah. yeah so that's there that is there okay. i think that's there yeah but um the the thing i think the novel does it, getting like, back to your original yeah. thematics of uh, wells wells's meditation on empire right uh i think that passage in the opening chapter of the novel captures it perfectly and there's there's a lost opportunity there because uh over the balance of that novel the mood and the discussions are along those lines sometimes they'll say you know look we're we're now in the position they don't say necessarily always in the in position in the position of uh, those that are um, under the control of the British Empire, sometimes they very interestingly say, and he says in that passage, you know, uh, as well, that uh, uh, we're in a position somewhat, somewhat like the uh, inferior animal, inferior animals would be under human control, mm-hmm. right? And uh, he has the he he also has the the, the feature in, in the novel of uh, the Mar- the Martians are here to hunt us, right? So it's an interesting, I, I think he's really tr- really trying to drive home to us, as it were, a thought experiment. Put yourself in the position of those that are being uh, hunted, uh, inferior mm-hmm. animals. And he says time and again, you know, the Martians are so completely different from us and so much more intelligent than us that uh, we can't even put ourselves in a position of understanding things from their point of view, Right. And 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 then the interesting comparison is made later on, when he is talking with the uh, artillerymen, that uh, you know this isn't a war, no more than there is a war between men and ants, and you know when when somebody's trying to get rid of an ant pile in, in their in their yard or the ants invading their house or whatever, right? Um, and I think that's interesting because you know when when you do kill ants in an ant pile or, or roaches in your house or crickets that won't stop making noise in your house you know Mm -hmm. it never occurs to you maybe slightly but you just you just swat them you just spray the poison that's it right so he he wants us to imagine well maybe the martians are at that kind of a stage where they look at us as nothing more than insects or something like that and he really wants you to play with that and think about well what would your world be like if there were this uh uh, invasion of this this race that is so far removed from us that they have no sympathy or compassion for us. What would it be like to live in that environment? Mm-hmm. How would you respond to that? And he has the unnamed narrator kind of go through shock. And you have the parson, the poor guy, he's in deep shock. It has is deeply 
deeply shaken his religious beliefs. How you know we uh, come upon this theme in more than one film we watch, but the question arises: How could God possibly allow something like this? And he 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 can't take it. He has been pushed to the breaking point by that, and the narrator has to deal with that because it's now endangering both of their lives. He's making a lot of noise, and that's a powerful part of that novel where he decides, I'm going to have to shut this guy up. And doesn't quite kill him, but for all practical purposes, he does. Um, and they kind of explore that with the Tim Robbins well, I, character, but it's just not there. I, I would love I, with, to have seen more dialogue in this film reflective of the novel. I, th- I think when you see, because outside of this movie, the other most famous film adaptation of War of the Worlds would be the one in the fif- mid fifties. Yeah, George Powell. Yeah, that and one. that's yeah. and like this one was con- reflecting the current temporary time. That one was reflecting the current temporary time, particularly the craze of flying saucers and science fiction movies. And yeah. it's not a tripod. Like at least this one gets right. It's a tripod. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And the and the fifties one, it's just flying saucers. Flying because weird it's things a, with it's, green it's, eyes. Yes. <laughs> Because it is, we talk about, I mean, nine, bring up 9-11, but this wasn't the only film, even a Spielberg film, that really was looking at this. Um, one year later, you had Casino Royale, the first of the Daniel Craig James Bonds, and this was probably still the most serious of all the Bond films. The main beginning of the film, he's trying to stop a terrorist attack at an airport in Florida. And later on, with the big card game that he's getting himself involved in, it's to stop terror funding terrorism. Yeah. So it's taking that and looking at it more seriously. Another, um, even the disaster movie. When you think of you know Independence Day, which some people feel that this film is a response to Independence Day, mm. the most famous scenes from that movie are blowing up national landmarks. Yeah, you could not do that at that point because people yeah. see that. And go, oh, no, because they think of 9-11. They think of the World Trade Center's fall. Um, even Spielberg's other movie, Munich, which came out this same year, that even though that that's about uh, Israel's response to the um, Olympic attacks at Munich and they're ass- assassinating the people responsible, the yeah. last scene of that movie there, it's take, takes place in New York. And they're deba- the two characters are debating about the effectiveness and the ethics of their mission. And as they leave, in the background, we see the World Trade Center building. Yeah. So it's it's it feels like they don't want to take the Wells idea because they feel this idea of colonialism in the Victorian area is of that time, and they just want to update it. So 50s, it's more maybe communism, like you had Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Yeah. In this era, it's 9-11, the fear of terrorist attacks. Yeah, and that, that very well could be. Um, and the problem is they didn't take up the other themes, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it just ends up kind of scratching the surface of, of a lot of, of the novel. I, I think the, the novel does a great job. Another another thing, it it uh, I think I'll have to say this about the movie. I think it does a good job with conveying the uh, gruesomeness with which the Martians operate. Um, again, to the analogy with insects, uh, one of the things. Um, one of the things that you learn about the insect world is uh, there are various insects that make a living in very gruesome manners. And uh, uh, the, the famous, most famous example is parasitic wasps. 
They, they, they lay their young inside of like a caterpillar, right? And somehow or another, they're engineered to eat around the nervous system of this caterpillar so it will stay alive the longest possible time and provide them with food long enough for them to be able to uh, metamorphosize into the wasp. Gruesome, extremely mm-hmm. gruesome, but prevalent throughout nature. And again, Wells uh, asks us, puts us in the position of what if we... Uh, ended up being prey to uh, creatures that did things like that. And the movie does a good job with that, I have to say. It it shows you things that the earlier versions of the film and uh, and the story wouldn't show because of its gruesome nature. The the Martians capture people with their long whip-like arms, and they throw them into these baskets on the back of the machines. Mm -hmm. And then periodically they pick one of those human beings up and puncture it with this syringe-like device and suck all the blood out of them, right? Yeah. Uh, kind of like, again, a mosquito, right? <laughs> On a much larger scale. So, again, he's asking you, uh, put yourself, consider how fortunate you are as a human being. You're not on that end of the, uh, as it were, the, uh, the uh, predator-prey spectrum. Um, what would it be like? How would we respond? Uh, and they do a good job with that in the movie. Now, they, they do put a little twist on it in the movie, which is not in the novel. In the movie, they make it fairly clear that uh, um, at least some of that blood is being used to uh, provide nutrition to the plants that yeah, they bring, the red weed around. that they, they have brought from Mars, apparently. Now, that's not the case in the novel. Uh, the red weed just happens to be red, and it's apparently the reason the red plant is indeed red, um, according to Wells. Um, uh, it, it, the, uh, Martians are just feeding on us because that's what they need. Um, again, though, I, I, I think, you know, it, it's an analogy and it's a metaphor. He's wanting us to put ourselves in the position of being very vulnerable like that, constantly hunted. Uh, so he's wanting you to think about that, but I also think in the novel, he's wanting you to also think about, as you pointed out earlier, how similar it is to people in, cultures that have been under imperial dominion uh how hard it is for them and how constantly under threat they are as well and they could have i think they could have still effectively done that i don't quite know uh why they chose not to maybe because it's only a two-hour movie i think it would be interesting for somebody to do a miniseries and, which uh, which get, has been done. I mean, BBC did a, one. A there's one currently running now yeah. on Epics, and I haven't seen it. And it's not a miniseries. It's, it's had yeah. a few seasons now, yeah. but it takes place in the modern era. Yeah. And I don't think it's very faithful to the... It, yeah, novel. I've heard the same thing. It. And there was another one that was done in 2018 or 2019. It's only a three-parter. And that one's supposed to be more uh, it's faithful. A, it's set in the Victorian era. It's set in the Victorian era, but there's still significant changes in the characters. Um, I can tell you, uh, now that we're talking about the BBC, uh, I think the single best adaptation of this story, it also modifies it. It puts it in what were then modern times, uh, is a 1968, a 67 radio adaptation of it. It, it lasts about three and a half hours, six, seven episodes long, and it reflects very closely the progression of the novel. And it manages to engage each one of these themes. And a a feature of it that I really like 
is, you know, in the story, the artilleryman, uh, the, the narrator leaves the artilleryman thinks, and he's just kind of, he's kind of weird. He's fantasizing mm-hmm. and he's wanting to, uh, commandeer one of these, uh, Martian tripod machines and turn around and do what the Martians are doing to humans. So, you know what? He's, he's, I, I, I don't want anything to do with this guy. So he leaves. Um, in the radio adaptation, the guy's a helicopter pilot. He meets Nicholson. That They give the guy a name, the main character, Nicholson, at the beginning of the film. They run into each other there toward the end of the story, just like the artilleryman case. But they remain friends. They talk in more detail about uh, their plans to try and go underground and fight the Martians from there. And there is no wisp of, and we're going to turn on men too. None of that. And they go into a fairly a fair amount of detail on that, and they remain friends, even to the end of the story when Nicholson's re- reunited with his wife, as happens in the novel, right? And uh, uh, he and the wife and Nicholson are all sitting at his house talking about these events, and uh, 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 the the helicopter pilot and his wife are kind of picking on Nicholson because he's still obsessed with the fact that people are not concerned enough about what happened. The, the crisis has already passed. People are forgetting about it and thinking, eh, we don't really need to prepare for a repeat of, repeat of this. But he says, you know what? The other night I saw flashes on the planet Venus. The Martians are still trying. Why are we being so complacent? And they just say, oh, there's Jeff being Nicholson being Nicholson again. Just relax, have a drink. And then that's the end of the story. It's great. Um, yeah. And that that radio adaptation just does an excellent job of cap- capturing every part of that novel. I think when you bring it up, the reason why it, there's never been a very faithful big budget film adaptation, or even just any kind of film adaptation or even miniseries adaptation that's been faithful to the novel. I think in some way you talk about radio, you almost have to blame Orson Welles for this, I think <laughs> because his infamous 1938 radio, which, but he, that's not faithful, He, but he wanted to take it in this modern setting where it's an actual radio broadcast, which, of course, famously got a lot of people riled up. Yeah. But I think pe- that's what people think of most when they think of War of the Worlds adaptations. So they're always trying to take that yeah. and do some sort of modern twist on it because I think they just feel that maybe setting it in the Victorian era is too old-fashioned, maybe, in yeah. some way. Yeah, and, and maybe they feel they have to. I'm not quite sure why because... Uh, the the problem still remains that, except for that one exception, that that one radio adaptation, uh, yeah, they modify it, they place it in a different time in history. You still could, you still could explore most, if not all, of the same themes, uh, and they just choose not to do it. And then the Wells radio adaptation, Orson Wells radio adaptation, is a perfect example of that. There's not too much of the thematics of the novel in that thing, especially in the first half of it. It is supposed to be a series of radio broadcasts and live updates of things. And, you know, the latter half is a little more reflective. They had to tone it down because people were getting too scared. (laughs) Yeah. And that's actually, you know, that was the way it was written. Um, And, of course, there's the raging controversy over... uh, how much he he expected this to happen, right? And how much intention there was, and uh, you, you can never tell from what he says. Because of, of course, early on he was, oh no, I had no clue this would happen. Probably trying to save his butt legally. Um, but later on in the fifties, he said, oh yeah, yeah, 
I, I kind of knew this would happen. Yeah. Uh, but then again, he's trying to polish his image as the artiste then. So you don't even know then if he's telling the truth. That's just classic Wells. Yeah. And I, th- I think the big problem with this movie, the thing I didn't really care for, what the thing is that this was original, but it's sort of the family sort of dynamic. It's very kind of cliche. Spielberg, uh, which he brings up into his uh, his biography because he mm-hmm. was estranged from his father for many years. They eventually reconciled. But he always has his father-son kind of issues. E.T., the family's divorced just like he was. Last Crusade, the problems with Indy and his dad. So it's this one. There, it's another divorce. And, you know, him, uh, Ray and his son Robbie don't get along. And I, it, I didn't find any of that compelling. And I really didn't like it, at his the character of Robbie, because he lets his son go into the firefight with all the soldiers. Yeah. And he's saying, you need to let me go. But it, he's incredibly naive because this is a 15-year-old, 15, 16-year-old kid. He has no experience in the military. Yeah. He has no business being in that firefight. Why is he letting him go? Yeah. And then the real part I really don't like at the end is that very almost forced happy ending. He They make it to Boston. His ex-wife is still there and uh, his ex-wife's parents. And they're all completely fine. Yeah. And Robbie is there. Yeah. And he's, com- he's got a couple scratches on his face, but he is completely fine. You see what happens yeah. immediately after he lets him go. The military is entirely wiped out. The whole thing's a blazing inferno. Yeah. The Martians won. They're turning that whole place into a red wheat farm. How does he escape? How does he yeah. make it to Boston before they do it yeah. and, and without a, almost a scratch on I, I remember my eyes, the ro- first time we watched this, my eyes rolled back in my head so hard that I didn't think I'd be able to pull him back forward. Mm-hmm. When it's you the, see him, it's completely unexplained. Uh, I think it would have been a little more, a bit more emotionally compelling and uh, uh, tragic if uh, he, you know, the, somehow or another they convey in that scene that even though he doesn't want him to go, he can't stop him from going, mm-hmm. right? And then he, you're right, he, he's, he's I mean, to give you guys, people that haven't seen this film an idea what, what he runs into, there are lines and lines of Abrams tanks. There are uh, uh, helicopters firing massive amounts of... Uh, Military jets firing missiles. All, all kinds of stuff going on. And on the other side, dozens and dozens of Martian tripod machines with their heat rays going left and right. So you're thinking, oh, he's dead. There is no way he's going to make it out of that. This will be a tragedy that the main character will have to deal with later. Um, the loss of his son and he, the fact that he could not stop him from naively jumping into the fray as noble as that uh, might have been. Um, but he just magically reappears. So that that totally diffuses that potential uh, there for some kind of yeah, we're interesting not the first deep connection between the character and the audience. They, they lose it there. It's just yeah. completely unexplained. And that's sort of the reason why I think this film isn't as held in high regard, because this was popular, like I said, when it came out. It made a lot of money at the box office. I remember it was parodied in the scary movie that came out the year after. But um, after that one or so year, year or so, it just yeah. kind of has been largely forgotten about. And this isn't like a underrated Spielberg gem, which I might say something like the Sugarland Express might yeah. be. This is just I can yeah. see why it's it's okay. It's flat. It's it, got- it's just kind of flat. There's no, there's no exploration of the characters. I think he actually made a mistake 
having the main character have kids that he had to be responsible for. Because mm-hmm. it, 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 that's one of the things everybody says. It's the, sh- the people say it's the Spielberg schmaltz. Yeah, and it doesn't allow him to kind of go on the extended adventures that the narrator does, Nicholson does, whichever version you want to talk about, um, where he's not, as it were, tied down to having to deliver these kids from danger. Uh, and that allows him to have these more complex discussions with other characters. It's completely lacking in there. I, I, I think every, every, every version of this story really misses the mark in not developing the relationship between the parson who has been shocked and his faith shattered uh, and, and Nicholson or the narrator, as the case may be. None of them have that except for that one radio adaptation. And it does an excellent job with it. You feel so much pity for both characters as the Nicholson guy comes to realize he's got to kill this guy or they're both, or he's going to, he's going to die. He's got a terrible decision to make because he's losing his mind. He's yelling and screaming. The Martians are nearby, nearby looking for human beings to harvest. He's got a terrible decision to make. Nobody has done that. (laughs) I don't want to be, too harsh on the movie because I, I think overall I would give it a thumbs up, a light recommend. Yeah, I do think there are the flashes of what makes Spielberg great, like that opening attack scene when the tripods, the design I think of the yeah. tripods are great. That yeah. roar they have, the yeah. is terrifying. It's awesome, and you yeah. have the heat rays, and even that little touch, like I said, with the. Uh, camcorder falling down we're seeing the camcorder shot like that is classic spielberg and when he's driving through the wreckage and it's the john williams score and the heat rays destroying that entire bridge yeah like that is well that's good things that make that and 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 i i I, running back or referring back to what i said earlier he's the first one to have taken on that part of the novel that's the most gruesome aspect of it that the fact that they're harvesting humans and visually he captures what the novel describes perfectly with the fluidity of motion with the tripods, how the arms can whip down and grab human beings and throw them in the cage. He captures all that wonderfully. Getting close to the end of my questions, is there anything else you want to bring up before we sign off? Uh, All these uh, versions we've been discussing about War of the Worlds, you haven't discussed one of my favorite versions, and that's the Jeff Wayne disco version from the late seventies. <laughs> it is that is so seventies, but it is. I think it's very entertaining. It is entertaining, and and just so you know, I, I collect War of the Worlds stuff. And for anybody that doesn't know this, <laughs> Al knows it, but none mm-hmm. not, not nobody listening does. Uh, there are several great radio adaptations of it that are. Just hilarious. Uh, there was a station in Buffalo, WKBW, who did a version of it in uh, of the radio kind of. They updated the Orson Welles story in 1968, and then they did it in 71, 73, I think, and then they stopped. It is hilarious. It is st- set in the 70s, and you have 70s DJs with awful 70s music. Uh, and then they break in with the news team, and then it gets pretty darn good. It's actually a very well done, um, but also just it, it is kind of hilarious. Mm-hmm. All right. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy at the Movies. You can find this podcast and more podcasts produced by the Stockdale Center by visiting the Radio Stockdale page at usne.edu. 
This program is hosted by Radio Stockdale. You can also listen to their podcasts such as Ethics of the Naval Warrior and The Do-Over. If you like this podcast, you might be interested in my other podcast, Real Sounds, where each episode I dedicate to classic movie soundtracks. That can be found online at thesoundofcinema.podomatic.com. So until next time, I'm Alex Baker. And I'm Sean Baker. Same, same. Oh, wait, do you see that? It's a tentacle creature. It's creeping <laughs> towards us. Oh, God, it's shooting the heat ray. No!